Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. It is I, your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, we're on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And with me today, we have Megan Carney. Megan is a artist illustrator. She is doing a webcomic of Beauty and the Beast right now. She's also an animator. Once Upon a Winter Wood was her thesis film. You can check that out on YouTube. Uh, but she's also the manager of the Comic Book Embassy, which is a studio space here in Toronto. I think it was initially for female creators in Toronto. Actually, that's kind of evolved organically. Okay. Um, Tell me we, about it. Uh, we opened up, I think, five years ago now. So, yay us. We were sort of an offshoot. Uh, I'd been taking night courses at the Toronto Cartoonists Workshop, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. It used to operate out of the comic book lounge on college. Yeah, the comic book lounge doesn't exist anymore. That was past Speech Bubble Guests' uh, Kevin Boyd's yeah. shop, right? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, so when uh, when that was disbanding, I'd been working from home. I was working in video games at the time, uh, and I was going absolutely bonkers and so i wanted an office out of the house uh, and i knew that ty templeton and uh karen smith were looking for a new teaching space at the time so i was kind of like hey i've been looking at real estate do you guys want to split and they said yes because i don't know (laughs) (laughs) so uh we wound up renting an office uh in chinatown Nice. And we have nine artists who work out of that space. And we also uh, share that space with Ty Templeton's comic book boot camp. Yeah, where he teaches people how to do comics, like writing, illustrating, that, all that stuff. They are great classes. They're really good. Yeah. So when we opened, we were, I think there were probably actually more male creators than female creators there. But now it's completely women right now. And I know that Karen, his wife, does the high tea at, yes. at the Comic Embassy, and that's sort of a networking event for female creators as well. Yeah, it's like a get-together for women who work in creative fields in Toronto. We, <laughs> we had a lot of china left over from my wedding, and it felt <laughs> bad letting it gather dust, so we thought, well, we'll hold teas and we'll use these teacups. And it's just, it's exploded. It's grown into a really big thing. Do people bring, like, baking and, like, those... Yep. those cookies and cakes and tea pies. Tea towers and stuff <laughs> my, my mother sent me a tea tower <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so yeah we just we have tea and we talk business we gossip 
It's just, it's friendly. Nice. So how often do they happen? They're usually once a month. Actually, we just had our, our annual charity last weekend, and that one's open to everyone. So it doesn't matter what you identify as. You're welcome to come to that one. We were fundraising for, I think, Ava's initiative this year which uh, puts together resources for homeless youth. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Maybe it's something that I will donate to in my gift exchanges this holiday season. That would be stupendous. Yeah, totally. So the high teas, they are specifically for women usually. What, What would be sort of the reasoning behind that? My initial thought was that I didn't know a lot of people in Toronto uh, and that the comic events I'd been going to were really male-focused or were more heavily attended by men. And I kind of wanted something that felt like a, a church basement after service where right. you all drink bad coffee <laughs> <laughs> and you check in on each other. And about that time, Karen had been wanting to do a fundraising event because um, our first one was a Christmas tea. Um, so we got together a few people. And we decided, okay, that was fun. Let's do it on the regular. And it turned into a real support network for a lot of people who, I guess, hadn't hadn't found their tribe in Toronto or hadn't found a creative community that served them. Cool. So now that it's been established and is sort of happening on a regular basis, what kind of support can the women who attend find there? Uh, honestly, a lot of it is emotional support, just sort of a pat on the shoulder and a, you know, me too, buddy, me too. But we network a lot. Like we <laughs> we'll swap teas, uh, we'll swap gossip, job tips. We talk about conventions. We talk about uh, anthologies that are taking work. It's honestly, it's a large group of creatives in different fields. So we do have crafters. Uh, we have people from the animation industry, uh, lots of cartoonists, people who work peripherally around creative work. Cool. Yeah, it's it's just been a really nice way to meet a lot of women who are in these creative industries, but who don't necessarily get the spotlight. Have you gotten any gigs from uh, Oh my teas? gosh, I swear my whole career has come out of these teas. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have met, um, like I'd never have met Hope. Uh, I would never have met um, like Leslie Doyle. I wouldn't have gotten to know Karen so well. I wouldn't have met Alison O'Toole. This is just, you know, friend of a friend drop-ins. And as you get to know each other better, you know what projects are on the table. And suddenly you have a pool of talent that you might not otherwise have seen. Right. And you collaborated with Hope and Leslie and Allison on The Secret Loves of Geek Girls, right? Yeah, we did. So that's published by uh, Dark Horse, although it was at first it was independently published, right? Uh, yeah. Initially, it was kickstarted and published through Bedside Press. Which, which is, is Hope's thing yeah that's hope's imprint and then it did very well and it caught the attention of some editors at a few different publishing houses uh and dark horse wound up getting the license to do a re-release of that which just came out this past october i think nice yeah yeah i remember attending the launch for that can you tell the listeners a little bit about your story in that oh which one Uh, (laughs) i did too (laughs) okay so tell us about both of them um, I pitched Hope two stories just because I wasn't sure quite where I wanted to go. And one was uh, an analysis of sort of the gothic bad boy trope, the Phantom of the Opera, Goblin King kind of thing. Oh, cool. uh, And the other one was talking about like avoiding dating in school. And she said, oh, give me both. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> avoiding dating. Was that a personal story or is that just... That, some- that one's more of a personal story. Okay. Um. It was funny because the piece that wound up in the book, it reads in a lighthearted way, 
but it was really hard to write. <laughs> I had to sift through some personal baggage to get the material I wanted to use for that. Oh, wow. So it wound up being a piece about sort of looking at the asexual and demisexual spectrum. Oh, cool. But it just started out being sort of a, haha, cooties are gross. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> uh, so, so did you identify that way at that time? or You know, it's funny because it wasn't a thing I'd given a lot of thought to. But the more I worked on that story and the more I looked at what I was talking about, the more I realized like, oh, that's exactly me. Huh. Well, mystery solved. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. So how does that express itself in your life now? Because like high school can be sort of an awkward time. High school's the worst. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I'm probably more settled and happy than I've ever been. Uh, my husband and I are actually expecting our first child uh, in February, so... Wow, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. That's awesome. So you're in a relationship and you're expecting your first child, which is which is amazing. But then does the asexuality that you experienced earlier in your life, does that still express itself in your relationship? It's an interesting question. Because we've never had like we've never had anyone who sort of I, identifies that way. I don't think I'm a real expert on this. Right. So uh, your listeners will have to forgive me. No problem. Uh, but, uh, I, I think I'm probably more probably more on the demisexual side of things. I see. I see. Where it's more like, a, uh, maybe I'll be interested if, you know, you turn out to be someone I can trust and emotionally connect with. Yeah. It's sort of like the right combination of person yeah okay yeah i guess i guess classically we might say that like oh it's it's you're romantic yeah and <laughs> and not just like the right person but maybe like the right set of circumstances in terms of like how they introduce themselves to you i think it's about finding somebody that you know very well and trust very much and it's a, it's a good question yeah. I, I guess it's it's hard to describe something when it's always been your context yeah 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 totally totally cool <laughs> All right, so I, I think I get get the picture, but let me go back a little bit to your early life. Um, I read a little bit of your biography, and it said that you you moved around a lot. Yeah, and, and you all and the fact that you moved around a lot sort of informed your your creative expression and books <laughs> and things like that. So tell me a little bit about your parents because you you describe them very uniquely in the bio on on your website. Well, I'm a navy brat. Okay. So uh my dad's a naval officer and so that meant that uh the military might send him to different places. Nice. Uh sometimes that means the family goes along and sometimes that means like he goes on his own. So growing up it means a lot of a lot of changes and you don't always have a lot of warning about when they're going to happen and you really have no control or say over it. So you're always new, like wherever you go. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so so how many how many schools did you have to like stand up in front of the class and be like, this is Megan. Everybody say hi. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, probably not as many as a lot of military kids, but let me count here. Um, probably five. Wow. So it's not not as bad as some kids. I know some kids will have a new one every year. Was that all over the world or all across Canada? Or? Well, I was growing up. All of our postings were in Canada. Okay. Um, when I started university, that's when they started getting overseas postings. Okay, cool. So about the time uh, I left home to go to school, they were like, okay, well, we'll be in America if you need us. So where, where have you lived? So I was born in BC. I spent most of my childhood in Nova Scotia. Uh, and I spent my teen years in Kingston, uh, out small town outside Ottawa, 
Um, then I went to Windsor for school. Wow, cool. I think we have two things in common. One is I was born in BC as well. Hey. And my my stepfather, his uh, extended family is in Windsor. He grew up in Windsor oh, and weird. went to the University of Windsor for his uh, degree. So I can talk to you about Tunnel Barbecue and, <laughs> things, and Freed's department store and oh things like gosh. that. Yeah, Windsor is a, a unique place. <laughs> totally. And, and the pizza. I always like the pizza oh, in Windsor. Windsor pizza and yeah. Bubby's Burgers. Really good. <laughs> totally. <laughs> awesome. So when you're when you're moving around and like you're in high school, how did comics come into your life? I, I loved comics from a really young age, actually. Um, my dad had a couple collections in his office at home. There was a Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, it was a copy of... Uh, Attack of the Deranged Killer Monster Snow Goons. Oh, yeah. Um, I got that title wrong. Uh, And there was a Garfield one as well. And I can remember finding those at about five or six years old and my mind just being blown. Like, you can do pictures and words? What is this? So all through grade school, I was really obsessed with drawing comic strips. Nice. And as I got older, I think in high school, I probably discovered manga. And then I was a terrible lost cause after that. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it about sort of the combination of words and pictures that you liked? Were you always an artistic kid even before you discovered comics? Yeah, I was always drawing. I had a little table in the kitchen where I could do Play-Doh or color with crayons. uh, And that would just be what I would do to keep busy. So then how did you go from sort of comic strips, which is not it's not like the typical introduction to comics. Like most people get involved in terms of in in superheroes. Mm -hmm. But then I shouldn't say that though, because most people, like if you're reading the newspaper, you're reading comic strips or whatever. I think comic strips are, uh, they're very generally accessible. Right. In a way that comic books at the time you really had to seek out. You weren't going to come across them just anywhere. Um, And I was living in Dartmouth, Um, which is a pretty economically depressed area of Nova Scotia. And so I was aware comic books existed. Like I'd seen them at uh, the local convenience store. Okay. And we had some, um, because there were a lot of military families there, we had some friends who were European. So they had a bunch of BD lying around the house. So they'd have, you know, Asterix and Tintin. And uh, I think they had a subscription to Disney Adventures that I really coveted. Oh, really amazing. <laughs> I, I used to love Disney Adventures. Yeah, Bone was running in it at the time. Really? Yeah, just briefly. Very uh, briefly. Oh, Bone. My brother, when he collected comics, he's a he's a 3D animated animator now. Oh. And he was big. While I was doing, like, the superhero thing, he was doing the sort of cartoon-influenced books. And Bone was... Yeah. The major thing that our, our comic shop steered him towards. So I hadn't actually set foot in a comic shop until I was, I want to say, 13. Oh. So it was just, there was not one. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a thing that was available. I think there was one in Halifax at the time. Uh, it might have been Strange Adventures. But I remember like driving by with my mom and going like, that store says it sells comics. And she said, mm, they're not your kind of comics. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. I think she thought I wanted another Garfield book or something. Right, right, right. Exactly. So what was your experience going to a comic shop at 13 like for the first time? Oh, it was incredibly thrilling. I was so excited because I knew all this stuff was out there. I just had never had access to it. I think I was up in Thunder Bay visiting family for the summer and... 
uh, oh, you know what it was? My um, my cousins were really into the like Michael Keaton Batman. Oh, nice. So their mom had thought, well, I'll get them some Batman comics. We'll go to the comic shop. And meanwhile, I'm just like quietly hyperventilating in the backseat. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you would just happen to be there and, and, and you went with them. It was really exciting. Cool. Did what did you did you pick up anything when you were there? I did. I did. Um, I picked up a copy of back when Tokyo Pop was still Mix. I picked up a copy of the first volume of Sailor Moon. Nice. And, and that was a gift for a friend. But you know, I read it. I was just careful with the spine. Uh, and I picked up a bunch of floppies because at the time they were publishing a lot of manga in floppy formats. They hadn't quite figured out how to market it yet. So I got some Ranmas. Uh, I think there was an Oh My Goddess in there, and actually a couple volumes of Nausicaa. Nice. That's perfect uh, lead-in to your love of manga. And like, what <laughs> what do you identify with uh, with manga? Why do you find it appealing? I think I initially liked it because uh, I was a real stickler for consistency. I looked at superhero comics with my you know youthful eyes and went, "Well, those artists aren't very good at staying on model." <laughs> like, oh no whereas the artistic um, elitist yeah, the yeah, just, oh, horrifying little 12 year old <laughs> but when you look at manga there is um at least within a single series there's a drive to keep that look very similar um and although it is done by uh often sort of a studio setup there's usually one author's name on the work and so it was stylistically consistent and to my young mind like that meant better <laughs> right, right, exactly. Cool. And like manga, because it's for everyone, like there doesn't seem to be a stigma. Like there's there's boy manga, there's girl manga, there's adult manga. Yeah, there's everybody. So it seems like it's they can go more places than North American comics go. I, I think that's true. I think there's more willingness to explore the mundane as well as the fantastic. Whereas for a long time, I think over here, we really wanted to have a focus on genre and on... Um, like fantasy, superhero fantasy, horror fantasy, like war comics, that kind of thing. There wasn't as much of a market for, you know, slice of life or highly specific. Like, I don't think there is a like a great sports comic that we've seen over here. Um, and if there is, I would love to hear about it. Right, but but Slam Dunk is like a, is like amazing. Yeah, Slam Dunk was huge. I actually use that in my classes to talk about um, <laughs> being careful with copyright and reference. Because there was, I think the NBA wound up uh, suing Slam Dunk for the use of a lot of their photos as reference. Wow, wow, crazy. Yeah, like when you can do like pages and pages and it's basically just like a pass or just like a move in basketball, you know that it's like really idiosyncratic and specific and it's stuff really, like that. I think it's very interesting <laughs> that there is um, like an audience for such highly specific things and that really appeals to me. Right. So, like I've always been a voracious reader of anything i could get my hands on and you seem like a very like a highly specific person <laughs> so, so, so that's awesome that's a very nice way of saying fussy <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so i also wanted to talk to you about your love of fairy tales because that's a huge i could already tell that's a huge influence on your work and your your studies and those sorts of things. So tell me about that. How what why are fairy tales so important to you? I think they resonate with some very basic human truths. 
I read them when I was quite young. As I said, I was a really voracious reader. So my mom would just go to the library and bring home a stack of 20 books, like whatever she thought might entertain me that week. So I read a lot of everything. And as I've gotten older, I've really enjoyed just keeping up with those collections. Like I loved um, the Andrew Lang collections, like the Blue Fairy book, the Violet Fairy book. Uh, And those were just, you know, big 300 page books that have, you know, a hundred odd fairy tales in them. So I think I always just like the strangeness of them. And if you go with like original fairy tales, they're very, they have like a darkness to them, right? They're really interesting because there are the ones that we, that we know well, like as a culture, we're like, oh, everyone knows Cinderella. Everyone knows Snow White. And I think those ones are popular because they have, their narratives make sense. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when you're just reading a volume of collected fairy tales, there are weird things in there. Where it's like the moral is never go fishing. Okay. <laughs> or like, don't pull up a cabbage. Well, and like Brothers Grimm, like, it's pretty violent, like sticking people into ovens and, and stuff like that. Like, like, they don't pull any punches. Like, I don't know if fairy tales are always for kids in the way that like parents think about I think something being for kids. The Grimm's are interesting because they were one of the first groups that started trying to clean up fairy tales for kids. If you look at their collected works, if you look at the first edition versus a later edition, they've edited like crazy. Like suddenly like, oh no, Red Riding Hood lives. Hey, don't (laughs) look at that old printed version of that. No, no. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they were actively um, censoring themselves as they realized that kids were reading the books because they hadn't initially been published for children. They were collections of folktales and stories in the oral tradition for adults. And when they realized that they were sort of achieving a different market, they cleaned up their act a bit. Did that happen organically? Like, did kids just start to become interested? And then so they adapted and started to hurry up for the taste of the kids? Or did they intentionally market them to kids? I think it might have had a bit to do um, with the development of childhood. Because, you know, like, Culturally, that's a pretty recent thing. You know, back in the day, like, okay, well, once you're walking, you better start helping out around the house. You better get working. Right. And then I think as we began to think of childhood as a separate time or as a protected time, like as the Industrial Revolution comes along, as Victorian morals come along, suddenly we have this idea of kids as, you know, precious and protected and special. And that's when I think we start wanting to clean up the world a bit for them. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, like, initially it was meant to convey, like, the hard truth of the world to to children. But then it became a little bit more protectionist. Yeah, I think we started to really um, embrace, again, sort of the fantastic side of it. And we want to play up, you know, the princesses and the fairy godmothers and the magic kisses. Whereas previously, we might have wanted to play up the, you know, Baba's Yaga's yard is full of skulls. It's on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Good and evil. Yeah. (laughs) Initially, I think there was a real hunger for the gory aspects of things and the gritty um, much like there is today, like we're we're a voyeuristic society, right? And it's it seems like much in the way that like early religion is sort of like yes. more hellfire and brimstone. Maybe fairy tales sort of come from come from that a little bit. I like think a so. Theological. I think a lot of it goes hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Life is brutal and short and you're going to die, but hey, maybe you'll get to go to that ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And like very focused on like class and like yeah. this is your place and hopefully you can progress out of it, but 
generally you won't be able to. <laughs> I think it's interesting because most fairy tales do come from uh, the peasant class and the working class. Like these are stories that are coming from the common people, if you will. But then when we hit the 1700s or so, suddenly they become something that's done for fun in the upper classes and the nobility. I'm going to say this completely wrong, but there, we get groups like uh, Les Précieuses. Okay. Make fun of me for my pronunciation no now. <laughs> Which are women who are gathering in salons to write literary fairy tales. And that's when we get all the glitter and the fairy godmothers and the magic. When they start taking these folk tales and dressing them up and making them into these elaborate Baroque novellas. So is is Sleeping Beauty like a literary fairy tale? What's an example of a literary fairy tale? Fairy Actually, tale? Beauty and the Beast is one. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, we, have an, we have an actual author for this one, and that's kind of rare. Um, Madame Villeneuve, obviously she is drawing on older narratives and she's drawing on older stories, but she published a novel called La Belle et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast. And it was a lengthy novel. Uh, and this sort of came out of the salon culture. She'd get together with her friends and they'd have storytelling competitions. Wow. So when was it first published? I want to say the 1740s. And about 15 years later, along comes Beaumont. And she takes the story and she goes, this would be really good for kids if I cut out, let's say, 75% of this. And so the version of the story that we often know from fairy tale collections, that actually comes from the edited version Beaumont put together because she wanted to take it and aim it at kids. Wow. Okay. So tell me, <laughs> what are the differences? Like, what did she cut out that was um, there? She took out a lot of subplots uh, because it was a novel originally. Mm -hmm. So we have our our standard setup. You know, father steals Rose, daughter takes his place in Beast's castle. The beast asks her to marry him. She says, no, this goes on and on. Her father gets sick. She goes home, feels guilty, comes back. The beast is dying. She agrees to marry him. Uh, spell is broken. So that's the standard framework that we mostly know. Okay. Whereas Villeneuve's book is like, okay, we'll do that. And that'll be the first act. And then we need to learn where everyone's family comes from. And then we need to learn everyone's backstory. And you're all related. And you all, you're all secretly royal. And these are <laughs> all the nobles that live in the house that were turned into furniture or? Oh, no, no, you're disney uh, now. <laughs> no, this is, this is like, oh, no, like, Beauty, you're actually a princess. And here's your real parents. And a wicked fairy threatened your father. And now she's a snake just nonsense and like oh and here's the prince and like his mother was at war and this like fairy raised him and then it got incestuous and she cursed him and wow it's, so it's ridiculous so is your work going off the original version my work is highly informed by the original version i've taken those parts and i've gone in my own direction with it okay uh what i thought to myself as i was developing the story is i wanted to make something that felt like if you were trying to explain it you might tell the fairy tale. Okay. So I wanted to take those beats and build around them in different ways and play with keeping a lot of the motifs, but maybe presenting them in slightly different ways. So is it a little bit more contemporary or? I think the attitude is contemporary. Okay. Because I sort of realized as I was researching, like, oh man, it sucks to be a woman up until like last week. There's no happy ending <laughs> if, I, if I try and be in any way accurate to any period with this. 
So the attitude is contemporary. Uh, the setting is sort of a general generic once upon a time. So why did you pick Beauty and the Beast? How do you identify with Beauty and the Beast? What does it mean to you? I think I think it does have a lot to do with my childhood, actually, with perpetually being thrust into circumstances beyond my control, uh, perpetually being an outsider and being a very bookish, strange little girl. <laughs> Uh, when I was first really interested in the story, I think it was because I did feel a lot like that sort of beauty character that she's being moved around and her family is sort of doing its own thing and she is isolated. But as I've gotten older, it's been much more like, ah, uh, what's that poor beast up to? Like locked up there being hideous, feeling bad about himself. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So so now you more identify with the with the beast sort of or are I, sympathetic to I the beast. I think I think I am. I think as I've gotten older that's been um a, a theme I'm more interested in. Cool. That's awesome. But a lot of people they get Beauty and the Beast wrong because I mean the first one of the first movies that I remember seeing as a kid was Be- was Beauty and the Beast. I think I like got really scared and sat on my Ant's lap the moment that the beast showed up. In, in He's scary. The, in he shouts. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> and, and now they are doing like a live action, looks like shot for shot remake of, of, of Beauty and the Beast, the Disney version. Mm-hmm. So what do people miss if they just know the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast? I actually think the Disney version is a really, really solid film. Like, I think it is one of their best. I really can't criticize it too heavily. I've had to work really hard to make sure I stay away from beats that they've used and themes that they've used, just because they did a magnificent job with it. Right, right. I'm just a fan of sort of knowing everything I can about things I'm enthusiastic about. So I think the Disney version is very much a story about uh, an angry young man who is learning how to behave. I feel like the Disney film is the Beast's story. And in that we have a very uh, angry young man who this is really following his development. Like Belle is there, but she doesn't change a lot through the film. Like she knows who she is. And although she has an adventure, it's not her emotional journey. It's his. Whereas when we look at the original fairy tale, uh, it is her emotional journey because the Beast character is... Like, he's very gentle, and he's very quiet, and he's very restrained. And it's really the story of her uncovering what she wants and what her desires are and coming to accept him. And not judging a book by its cover, or like... Yeah, in a way. Yeah? In a way, yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, I sort of identify with that as, like, a person with a disability and stuff like that. Uh, that's cool. That's really awesome. It, it's also a story of like transformation, right? Absolutely. Like not only are you sort of coming to grips with like things that initially seem ugly and scary or, or, you know, might be good actually in the end, if you, if you give them a chance, but then there's also that idea of like humanity and, and, and transformation and, you know, taking something ugly and turning it beautiful again and back and, and sort of that inner side of someone. I think what's interesting to me is that when we look at the classic fairy tales, we are definitely seeing a story like this is Beauty's story. This is her road to walk and her development and her revelation to come to. When we look at Disney's story, it's about the beast and it's about um, self-loathing and self-acceptance and learning to be a good person. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to do something where 
both characters had to grow and develop and meet in the middle rather than one character having to come to deserve the other. Right, right. Because, I mean, it usually works the way that you want it to rather than, you know, the way that like, it's sort of an old cliche to have to deserve someone and like, yeah, you know, it's not exactly the best, the best message yeah, to maybe send. maybe not the healthiest thing. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. Beauty and the Beast, like, what are your plans for it? Is it going to be, like, a long-term webcomic, or...? It's been running since 2012. Okay. Uh, and I just finished So already the... pretty long-term. Yeah, I just <laughs> finished the print edition of Volume 2, and that clocked in at over 300 pages. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. <laughs> that got away from me. Um, so ultimately, it will be uh, three acts, so three printed volumes. Uh, and I've just begun Volume 3. We're about 40 pages into Volume 3 right now. So I'm expecting it'll probably be running another year to two years before it wraps up. Do you find that like being a little bit more faithful to like the original version means that you can tell a longer version of the story and like go to the details sort of more? Definitely. Um, I really like decompressed storytelling. So that's another thing that I think I wound up absorbing from manga. I love it when they take a moment just to show like, oh, it's morning. There are birds in the trees. Like here are some dewdrops <laughs> on the leaves. Uh, and that's probably why this darn thing wound up so long. <laughs> There's a lot of contemplative moments. You're a very show-don't-tell type of person. I try to be. I think comics are a wonderful venue for acting. I'm a college professor. I teach in an animation program here in town. Wh- where? Uh, at Max the Mutt, actually. Oh, cool. <laughs> I think uh, you spoke with Megan Carter about Yeah, that. she also teaches at Max the Mutt, I think, right? Yeah, she's, uh, she teaches in the comics stream, uh, and I was teaching in the animation and concept art stream. Um, I'm away this semester because baby's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but when I talk to my students there about animation, I talk about animation being the child of uh, vaudeville and Broadway. Now we have to think about it in terms of this very broad acting. But when I'm working in comics, I think of comics as being a form of slow cinema in that I have to think like a filmmaker. So a lot of that is knowing when not to use a lot of dialogue and instead let your your characters do their acting or let your uh, scenario communicate on its own. Wow. And like cinematic in terms of also shots, like your panel is your camera sort yes, of thing. Yes, exactly. Right? Your point of view. Yeah, you want to think about what mood you're creating by where you're putting this imaginary camera. Right. That's awesome. My brother is an animator. He uh, is actually working on, or he did work on visual effects for Beauty and the Beast that's coming out. Oh my gosh, action, that's so cool. The live action version. <laughs> so I know a little bit about the idea that like, animation comes from Broadway or vaudeville because most animators work with like a mirror in front of them in front of their computers whether they're at a drawing table or at a computer because they have to know how things would look when when they move right yeah you're you are your best reference right and so you so you get really in touch with your body in, in a way that you probably never anticipated when you were going into animation right you have to think about things in a way you never otherwise would I mean like like thinking about even what it takes to open a door handle 
or how to how to realistically think about well if i'm moving what muscles are moving like what leads and and there's a phenomenon that happens that a lot of animators experience where they see themselves in their shots absolutely so there's like a little glimpse of how you move in the shots that you make so people can start to identify like who did what shot based on they see the people that they know kind of in in the shot a little bit absolutely i think like because because we do reference ourselves uh sometimes it can be really hard to remind yourself to make a face emote a little differently like just because your eyebrow does that does not mean everyone's eyebrow does that (laughs) I know I have to really fight that. I need to broaden my expressiveness. So as a person with disability, I'd be a very screwed up animator because because it would be, there'd be things that would be happening that wouldn't be uh, yeah, quote unquote normal for the able-bodied person. For the able-bodied your, your person, your core point of reference would be different. <laughs> yeah, totally. Your your idea of what range made sense would just be different because your your library of experience is different. Right. That's awesome. Cool. But and you. I guess as an animator, you have to sort of have a way of not putting too much of your bodily signature on it and trying to make it a little more varied. Or- I think I think it depends on the character. Okay. Um, now, keep in mind, I'm a terrible animator. Okay. <laughs> There's a reason I'm in comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I can make something move, but I really lack elegance. Right. And when you see an elegant animator... You know why they're an animator. (laughs) Yeah, I think it depends on the character. You have to think about motion that's appropriate for that character. So you will see animators complain about getting the hero or the heroine, getting the straight man character, because they have to be so realistic. Whereas if you get a goofy sidekick or uh, an animal or something, you can be pretty broad because people don't expect realism from them. Right, right. So in terms of your career path... What did you choose to do after after high school? Did you go into animation? Did you go uh, into comics? Like- I chose to crash and burn. <laughs> it was bad. Um, no, I, I wanted to go into animation. I wanted to go to Sheridan, but I had only been accepted into the Fundies program, which is uh, a one-year art fundamentals program, which okay. is actually a really good program. I should have gone there. But um, uh, I'd also been accepted at the University of Windsor for a fine arts program, and I'd gotten a scholarship there. And so I thought, well, okay, (laughs) that was not a good idea. (laughs) Why? What happened? Uh, It wasn't a good fit for me. And this was the same time my family had moved overseas. So I was this terribly sheltered, just, oh, it was bad. It was not good. Oh, man. But uh, I did a three-year degree there. Um, I did a degree in fine art with a minor in English. And I actually do use quite a bit of what I got from that English minor even today. Uh, but from there, I secretly reapplied to Sheridan and I didn't tell anyone until I was accepted. Uh, so I went straight from a degree in fine arts into a degree in animation. So it was sort of like, I will suffer through this to get the degree, but get me out of here so I can go back to yep. what I want <laughs> I was to do. entirely fueled by hate. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but that's funny because, um, as we mentioned earlier, I was listening to some of uh, Speech Bubble's backlog and actually aaron feldman one of the people you've interviewed regarding the toronto comics anthology he and i were in the same dorm in first year oh and you didn't know no we knew each other actually we did um we'd drawn some comics together we wound up in some english programs together later on and then ran into each other when we both had moved to toronto later (laughs) 
That's awesome. I love when that happens. I'm just like, oh, no, it is a small world. I, <laughs> I need to behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's so cool. So when you got to Sheridan, which is a very prestigious program, like they're world renowned for the animators that they produce and, and the artists that they produce in general. So what was that like? Was that a better experience for you? It was definitely a better fit for me. It was uh, it's a much smaller program. It's much more intimate. It's a lot clearer what the goal is. Like it is a college program. It's a trade program. Um, so it's very focused in the courses. And it's it's less about you choosing things you think might be interesting and more about beelining for that one solid goal at the end. And it's more practical. I guess yeah. sometimes university degrees can get like bogged down by the liberal arts. Yes. It's a little <laughs> airy-fairy. Um, like a fine arts degree is such an amorphous thing (laughs) oh what did you do for four years i don't know whereas i think like animation is a technical program so it was really about like getting strong basics know your anatomy know your motion like learn these solid clear principles whereas a fine arts degree is a lot more like like but what's the theory behind your color choice (laughs) i mean i i love the fine arts i'll defend them but (laughs) <laughs> I have a BA and BS. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Some of the things that you learn in animation can really help in comics though too. Like Absolutely. Those sorts of those sort of fundamentals in terms of design and how things are supposed to are supposed to look, right? Anatomy yeah. and those sorts of things. I, I'm so glad that I got that good training because otherwise I think I would be very sloppy. <laughs> so it's it's nice to be able to lean back on like okay, like I'm going to use that good solid cleanup I learned. I'm going to like make sure that my poses are clear, plant those feet, expressive faces. Um, I need to push myself more. And I know this. Uh, push yourself how? Artistically. You know, you want to push. It's easy to make something a little too static. And you always want to push it far enough that it becomes more dynamic and more exaggerated. Uh, and I think that suits sort of the tone and style I work in. Nice. So I, I want to push myself more. Cool. And... <laughs> What I noticed about your style is it's it's a little like Disney animation. I, I would I would say that's Sheridan's doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's but it's good because you don't see that in comics very often. Like you you know it's more superheroes and muscles and things like that. But I, I like the whimsy of of what you of what you do for sure. I think a lot of the comics I admired growing up they tended to have sort of a, an animation finish to them. Things like Bone, a lot of the things Oni Press was putting out, they sort of had that more solid structured finish rather than illustrative. And I think that was a big influence that I wanted to be a solid artist too. I wanted to be able to make something that looked tangible. Nice. So when you got out of Sheridan and you achieved the goal, <laughs> what did you do? Like, how did you feel? Did you, what did you do next? I crashed and burned again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at change. No, uh, I got a job out of school uh, as the art director at a very small mobile game studio. I wasn't qualified. They didn't have the resources to properly train me. So it was just really, really difficult and really, really draining. And it seems like very computer heavy and technical. Yeah, and right? I am not a technical person. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So lesson learned there. But um, sort of dealing with that stress, I actually started developing what became Beauty and the Beast in the evenings. I started sort of putting together sketches and trying to really hammer out that story because I thought, well, I've always loved comics and 
unlike animation, you can do a comic as a solo creator. You don't need a team. So I started developing that and I started taking uh, night school courses, as I mentioned, at the cartoonist workshop. And that wound up just being like the only bright thing in my life. Wow. So eventually my husband sort of was like, you need to quit this job. Like, like, this is killing you. How how long did you suffer in agony at that job? About a year. Okay, so, so not Not too that bad. long in the, in the <laughs> grand scheme of things. But by the end of it, I was very unwell. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really grateful that, um, that my husband did speak up and sort of say, like, I'm, I'm asking you to stop. I'm asking <laughs> you to stop this because this is going to kill you. Yeah. Uh, and around that time, that's when we opened the studio. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then it just opened the floodgates. It was honestly a pure accident. It was kind of like, okay, I'll do this while I'm trying to get better. Like, I'll, this is what I will do and I'll keep busy. Uh, and then I just kept keeping busy and <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and now you now you manage uh, I do. the Comic Embassy. So what does that involve? It's not terrible. I make sure that I, you know, I keep the bills paid, uh, collect the rent, and make sure that we keep uh, a good roster of artists in house. Okay. So who who's on your roster right now? Oh, we have um, we've got nine right now. So Megan Carter, um, Rachel Kahn, uh, we've got Nicole Trudel. Uh, we've just lost Xavier Domery. She's had to go back to France, which oh. is very sad. But we're gaining Sam Bosch, so that's really exciting. Okay. Yeah, we've also got a couple writers and a painter in-house right now as well. Nice, cool. And most of them, do, they do comics? It's primarily people doing comics, uh, although we do have a few people who, you know, uh, are active in fandom or who write articles or who, uh, actually, we have a friend of mine from university who's an abstract painter. Uh, she's splitting her time. She comes to the studio to paint and she works at IMAX the rest of the time. Wow. Yeah, it's awesome. really neat. That's awesome. IMAX. Tell me a little bit about your thesis film, because I, I saw oh. it before our interview, and I really liked it. I, I liked the sort of storybook style of it. I like It reminded me uh, of Coraline, like oh. your, Neil Gaiman's Coraline. Yeah. But more in the, like, Dave McKinney illustration sort of way than the claymation movie right. sort, sort of way. That one, again, it always comes back to fairy tales. <laughs> I had wanted to do an adaptation of the fairy tale Brother and Sister, uh, which is about two young siblings who get lost in the woods and the younger brother is transformed into a deer. Okay. And so I, I thought that was interesting. There were interesting things to play with there. And the story I put together was too complicated. Sheridan encourages us to do um, a film that's complete in two minutes. Okay. And so I realized, like, this is going to be much longer than two minutes. So I wound up simplifying it down to the two siblings go into the woods and the brother goes missing and the sister looks for him. But I wanted to do something with interesting textures um, and paper and cutouts and things because, as I said, <laughs> I am not an elegant animator. I was not going to be able to do some beautiful Fantasia business. I was just not on the table. Uh, so I decided I would just try and put something together that was achievable for me. You know, in the eight months we have to do that. Mm. Uh, so I wound up going with an interesting look where I, I scanned felt and I scanned paper samples and I wanted it to look as though it were sort of a handmade paper stop motion thing, even though I animated it digitally. And I like that you sort of interact with the environment. Like it's not just the two characters interacting. 
the main climax of the film is that you're you're physically tearing the background <laughs> yeah apart right i had i had sort of conceived of this thing taking place in a pop-up book mm-hmm. and one of the characters realizing that she is inside a pop-up book and then being able to manipulate the world based on that knowledge. Oh, nice. So while you're doing like fil- like animation and also comics, are you studying fairy tales in your spare in your spare time as well? Yeah, I like to keep up. Like I like to keep up with things, and oh. when I'm interested in something, I like to know everything I can about it. So with Beauty and the Beast, like I did pretty exhaustive research at the beginning around volume two i sort of did another wave of it to refresh myself and now i think i'm going to need to do a third wave just sort of going back to my resources and making sure that i am still uh staying true to the story i wanted to tell nice that's cool so besides beating the beast um how do you how do you generally like make a living as an artist and and do your do your craft Uh, It's kind of 50-50. Teaching makes up the bulk of my income, although I am away from that right now. Um, And freelancing makes up the rest of it. But I will confess, this is not a career I could have if I didn't have such a supportive spouse. Right. So I think think it's important to admit to those things. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And maybe uh, you can get benefits that way too, which helps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you, (laughs) massages are nice. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, (laughs) so as an artist, like, what is your convention experience? Do you do you go to conventions and sell your sell your stuff there? Yeah, I do. I do a fair number of them. Um, I've been trying to keep it a little more local this year. Uh, Last year, I was traveling a bit more and doing more in the States, and it was just exhausting. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to dial things back a little bit. But I found I I do best at small press shows, places like TCAF or SPX, because I focus mostly on moving print editions of my work. Right. And so that's a a much harder sell if you're at uh, Fan Expo or something like that. Nice. So what was the what was the first comic that you that you published? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, The first comic I published, aside from some terrible fan comics on the Internet as a teen, uh, I put out a floppy called Perdue um, back in university. Uh, And if anyone has a copy, I beg you to burn it, Uh, which was a sort of gloomy comic about... um, a little girl who dies in a car accident and the like strange spirit guide who comes to like convince her to cross over. Oh, <laughs> and I had a whole backstory written and I just wound up shelving it um, and moving on to other things. Yeah. Yeah. But, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I made a print run of that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at that. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the crow meets the Phoenix saga. It was real bad. <laughs> was real bad. <laughs> no, I had a whole, um, a whole background story about this character and a whole world developed about like, oh, and these, you know, this group of people, they work in the underworld and they have to guide like lost souls so they can earn their fare across the river sticks. And it was all very complicated and I did not follow through on it. Sounds like something a university student would totally create for sure. (laughs) It was was what we will call emo. (laughs) That's awesome. It was very emo. Cool. So what is your experience in the community now? I mean, Toronto has a very strong fan community and you manage one of its epicenters so what what is your impression of toronto's community it's amazing it is just the most amazing 
Uh, I never expected this when we first came to Toronto. I, I feel like I just stumbled across something wonderful that a lot of people don't see at all. Just all the conventions and all the creators and like all of the events going on. And there's just, it's so interesting seeing all that cross-pollination and, you know, everyone... Everyone knows each other. There's so many anthology projects going on, so many book launches going on. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's a very exciting time to be a part of this community. No, absolutely. And it's not just that there are so many creators and events and so many opportunities and so many stores and all that sort of stuff. It's so many different stores that cater to like different tastes or whatever. But it's also that like the creators that they do, ha- that we do have, there are different levels of creator. Like you have yeah. your, your, like Marvel DC people and then you have your independent people and then you have your people who are like somewhere in the middle and then you know doing all kinds of things so it's like if you're an artist I I I bet it's very beneficial because you get to experience like certain levels of <laughs> the profession yeah. by proxy it's kind funny of. when I think about it when I sort of look back like, oh, wow, like, I did level up. Like, there's there's where I came in, and here's where I am now. We started at the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm just ugh, probably dangerously ambitious, so I'm always scrambling forward, trying to figure out what I'm going to do next and what project I want to put my energy into. But it, it is kind of neat to look around and sort of see your cohort, almost. The people who started out about the same time you did, starting to make it. Or seeing who has gone somewhere else with things. It's really neat. It's kind of nice to be like, oh, like my friend just got a cool book deal. And I remember when she was trying to finish her 24-hour comic. Right. And it seems like the female community has really solidified over the past year or so, I want to I say. I feel like it has. I feel like it was sort of, it, it was coming. Mm-hmm. And it, it has really come together in the last two or three years. Yeah. I think I think it just sort of reached a point where we realized we needed um, a little bit more of a dedicated space. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has just meant that the community can really flourish. Nice. So since since you're so focused on like what you're doing next and what the next challenge <laughs> is, what is the next challenge? What are you doing next? Um, well, I'm actually doing some writing for Disney right now. Wow. Which is really, really exciting. And how how did that come to you? Um, you know, it's it's funny. Obviously, there's like no dis- non-disclosure yeah, agreements no, there's, and stuff. There's NDAs up the wazoo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in terms of like, um, how did that opportunity come to you? Like, it's, it's funny because I actually just, I pursued it really hard. And I've never had the guts to do that before. But uh, a publisher reached out to me for whatever reason. And we had a nice talk. And I just continued to follow up with them somewhat aggressively <laughs> which i've never had the nerve to do before but i was putting art samples in front of them pretty regularly and at one point um i was discussing with one of the editors uh, a project that may or may not go forward and i sent her some springboards for story concepts and she liked them so much she asked me to come on board with another series wow so it's it's really exciting we will see where that goes it could entirely fall apart it sounds like the culmination of like everything you are (laughs) as an artist (laughs) it's kind of funny it's it's kind of funny because i never would have thought like I, i guess i went to school for this but i certainly never would have thought i would arrive here (laughs) yeah because like stylistically and like the fairy the fairy tales that you cover like it's 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 very disney-esque and i mean some people would take that as a compliment other people would call that too corporate and what the hell i'm never sure (laughs) i'm never sure how to feel (laughs) but like 
I mean, that's that's amazing. I've also got um, Connor McCreary and I are working on a graphic novel. Cool. So we're hoping for a 2018 release on that. So that's the other iron in the fire right now. Nice, nice. That's that's awesome. He's a great writer. He, he is a great writer. Uh, he was sort of co-writer on Kill Shakespeare. Yes. Which was uh, IDW, I think? Uh, yeah, that's IDW. IDW um, a comic that was sort of also going to be like a film too. I think he pitched it at like TIFF as one of the... I'm not sure where ideas. that's sitting right now, yeah, but yeah, I know yeah. they have a lot going on with that even right, now. Right, right. Totally, totally. Cool. Well, I mean, thank you so much for, for coming in. Do you... I wanted to ask you, because you, you mentioned how you've become... You per, you had the guts to, like, pursue this uh, opportunity, which is amazing, more aggressively. How do you think that you've evolved as a person, and what do you attribute to that evolution? It's interesting. I think um, I think I've got my feet under me. Is what happened. <laughs> I think I'm finally starting to feel uh, a little more secure as a professional in this industry, um, and a little more secure as a, a member of the community in Toronto. And I think just having knowing I've got some people behind me, and knowing I've got some people who believe in me, it, it gave me a lot more nerve than I've ever really had. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's really awesome to know a person who's early life was in so much flux the way that yours was and then finally you have some some stability and a home and a support and a community i mean that's that's really great it's uh it's interesting because i think you just hit the nail on the head i think that's exactly it i spent a long time just waiting for the next wave of change that i had no control over to hit me uh, that it took me a long time to get up the nerve to act as though I had solid ground under my feet. Nice. And everything else followed from there, it seems. It really cool. Did. <laughs> well, I, I love that you that you came in. Uh, where can people find you online? Ah, you can find my work, my website, which is thequietly.com. And you can find me on social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Spooky Maggie. Nice. Can we subscribe to Beauty and the Beast? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that is at B-A-T-B dot the comic series dot com but you can also find your way there from the quietly dot com nice nice and and your work uh on the secret loves of geek girls is available at comic shops everywhere it is which is exciting which is awesome uh i can't wait to see what happens with this disney project you you have to come back and let us know (laughs) when when you can what it is uh yeah so thank you so much for coming in this has been an amazing conversation well thank you so much for having me you've been a most gracious host thank you and we'll see you next time on speech bubble yay this has been speech bubble see you in the future friends never sleeps network This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.